when I was your age, television was called Fox. Welcome to the Book Exchange Podcast. Mephistopheles is not my name, as a matter of fact. And to be honest with you, I really have no idea what the subject of this interview in this podcast is up to just the same, but we're going to attempt to find out on this episode today. Uh, We have a special episode for you all, you listeners. Thank you for tuning in, wherever you're tuning in from. We are going to be doing something a little bit different, kind of turning the the microscope back on ourselves a little bit here. We're going to have a full episode-length interview with my co-host, Mr. Jude Joseph Lovell, writing and podcasting out of the Lehigh Valley in Pennsylvania. He's putting out a brand-new short novel called Time O'Clock, and that will be the focus of this episode. I think it's going to be a fun and wild ride. And with that, I would like to not only introduce my co-host to most of you, if you've listened to the show already know, but prolific writer and author, Mr. Jude Joseph Lovell. Jude, glad to have you on in this capacity. How's it going? Good. Thank you for having me on. <laughs> and I'm excited to get going. Uh, I'm going to be speaking on behalf of Foster Mullins today. That's right. And we'll get into that. I mean, and in a way, you're sort of contractually obligated as co-host to be on this, to actually show up and do the show. But uh, <laughs> so I'll just remind you of that, you know, the legal team is whispering in my ear here, reminding you that you are indeed contractually obligated to show up for each episode. However, not in this capacity, as I said before. Today, the focus is going to be somewhat on you uh, and on your book, which I'm excited to talk about. I've read it twice, I think. Uh, Our listeners and readers really around the world will find something to enjoy in this adventurous kind of mind-bending tale, which we'll get into. Um, But uh, it's also different. And, you know, we've mentioned on the show many times that you are a writer of both fiction and nonfiction, and you write for a local magazine. You write essays, reviews. I mean, there's very little that you don't write, but uh, it's going to be fun to get into one of your books in detail here. And, uh, you know, hopefully what some interest in it, but also I think, you know, the nature of the book is going to take us down a lot of, you know, uh, winding and forking paths, which is sort of the nature of the show. So I'm excited. Hope you are, too. I am. Yeah, it's a, it's a it's an honor to talk to you about it, really, even though we're brothers and go back all that way and stuff like that. But, you know, and it is a little self-serving. It would be fun to generate some interest in the book. But, you know. I, I think if I can humbly say, I think you're right. I think it, you know, the, the nature of this particular story gives us some avenues that we can go down that aren't maybe exclusively focused on me personally. So that's, uh, that's to the good. Absolutely. And th- you know, this book is just coming out. Like I said, I mean, it was literally, I think in the last week or so made available, uh, their population, uh, via Amazon. And, um, you know, it's just a really, it's a fun kind of wild ride and we're going to get into it in detail. So I'll, I'll, I'll summarize it in a few minutes, 
But um, yeah, I think this is going to be a really fun one. So, and just as a note, right out of the gate, I was going to say this a little bit later, but I'll just say it right now for anybody who's listening at the beginning of this show, the, the show is going to be, we're going to do the show in two parts. So what we want to do is kind of, if you haven't read any books, any of Jude's books before, um, certainly not this one because it's brand new. We're going to, we're going to have a sort of a spoiler free half where we talk about the book, what went into writing the book. We're going to discuss it, but not give away any plot points or details. And that'll be the first half of the discussion. Then we're going to take a break and we're going to come back and we will talk about, you know, this is a, the plot. There's a lot of mystery and kind of nuance and, and sort of, uh, you know, twists and turns in the plot in a way. So we're going to get into some of that stuff. So, uh, I would encourage you, if you have interest in reading the book, to maybe listen to the first half of the show, the book, read it, and then come back and listen to the second half of the show. And then, uh, you know, it's always fun to kind of, with a book like this, where there's, there's, you know, not everything is entirely clear, let's just put it that way. Um, you know, it's fun to kind of unpack it, whether it's a book or a movie, sort of unpack it after you've digested it. So that's sort of the idea behind the two-part structures. So, that's it in, in terms of, you know, describing this episode. And now, you know, we'll take a quick break now, unless you have something else you want to say. Dude, do you have anything else you want to add before we take a break? Uh, no, let's just uh, maybe let's do our break and we'll get, get right into the show. All right, let's do it. We'll take a quick break and then we'll come back and do our usual segment, talk a little bit about what we've been reading. And then we'll dig right into the book, the novel again, Time O'Clock by Jude Joseph Lovell. We'll get into it in a second. Jude, since you're, you know, you're, you're on the hot seat for this episode. So we're going to start off with you. What have you been reading lately? What do you want to tell us about? Well, first, I'm just going to offer a quick correction because, and I'm sure we're going to get into this, but Time O'Clock is actually by somebody named Foster Mullins. Who's, oh, uh, good point. Yeah, that's, that's a pseudonym. Uh, and we'll get into talking about that. Um, but I just don't want people to be confused if they look the book up and don't see Jude Joseph level on it. So we'll get into that. Um, yeah, no, in terms of what I'm reading, I, I'm excited right now. I'm I'm currently engaged in, so as you mentioned, you know, and that's, you know, people know if they've listened to the first couple minutes of the show that I am a writer of fiction and nonfiction. And that means that occasionally I will read things as research for a project that I'm either contemplating taking on or in the process of taking on. And so that's what I'm doing right now. But when I say it's research, I mean, and in this case in particular, it's really, it, you know, that that connotes work. This isn't really work. I'm very excited to read this book. So I'm actually engaged in an, a biography right now, about halfway through, of somebody named um, Dr. Ronald McNair. And for those of you who don't recognize the name Dr. Ronald McNair, maybe some listeners are not old enough, but I, I think a lot of people are old enough to recognize the name. But if you don't recognize that name, Dr. Ronald McNair was a mission specialist who perished 
on the USS Challenger. I mean, on the Challenger, I don't think it's USS, sorry. On the NASA's Challenger space shuttle in, in, on January 28th of 1986. So John, of course, as you know, you and I were teenagers when that disaster happened. Um, Ronald McNair was an African-American NASA um, um, employee and scientist. He was a physicist by trade. And um, it, this biography I'm reading is called, it's a clunky title. It's called In the Spirit of Ronald McNair, an American Hero. And it was written by his brother, Carl McNair, and uh, a, a ghostwriter or like a, 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 another writer. And um, it actually didn't come out until somewhere around 2011, 2012, something like that, even though Ron McNair died in 1986. And, you know, I won't get all into it. I'll just say it like, so Ronald McNair was the second Afri African-American in history to go into outer space. He flew in one other mission before he perished in the Challenger in 1984 on the same vessel, the Challenger, I believe. Might have that wrong, but I believe it was the Challenger. Um, and I, my interest in him was kindled by, I've mentioned before on the show, a Netflix documentary called Final Flight. It's a four-part documentary on the Challenger disaster. He was mentioned really only briefly. I mean, he's in there a lot, but he was sort of spoken about only briefly for a few minutes in the first episode when they're going through kind of the backstories of the astronauts. But I just got, I became really struck by something. There's an archival clip of something he said. Um, and so it was him talking and he said that he was from rural South Carolina and he grew up in poverty. And when he took an, age, an interest in the space program, people, almost everybody around him, which was mostly African-American, said to him, that's not something a black child can do. You know, you should think about trying something else, you know. Mm. And he took that. He was a very gritty and determined man. He took that as a challenge. And then he went through an incredible um, incredibly unlikely academic career. He got a PhD from MIT, being from rural, segregated South Carolina, and then made it into the space program and ended up as a mission specialist and perishing on the Challenger. So that really gripped a hold of me, like, and I, I mean, of me personally and my writing sensibility. So since then, I've been really contemplating writing something, probably fiction based on Ronald McNair's life. Just a little teaser there. So I'm reading the bi biography his brother wrote. It's a very loving book. It's written in very straight up prose, but I'm absolutely fascinated by it. It's just, he's just a fascinating man, and he is an American hero. So that's what I'm reading. Over to you. Yeah, that that is a great, great idea. Uh, I don't, you know, I we were of course both alive when the when the Challenger disaster happened. Um, I don't, I really didn't remember his name. You certainly do not hear him mentioned or talked about often um certainly if the challenger disaster uh is commemorated in some way he's obviously a part of that but uh this seems like a really untold story you know even after you know posthumously after his you know death on the on the in that disaster of the space program um but you you know You've sold me on both the Netflix documentary series and the the life story of Ronald McNair. Ronald Mc, Ronald McNair. Do I have that right? Yeah, Ronald McNair. Yeah, yeah. And it, it just seems like a totally untold story. And I think it's a great idea to delve into it. You know, maybe for your own purposes, but also just to recommend to others. You know, to kind of look into his life and and you know 
draw inspiration from it. That sounds like an incredible story. So uh, that's a really great pick. Um, Thanks. So, yeah. yeah, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I, I, the only thing I, I'll add, because I know we want to move on, is, uh, you know, I hope I can turn it into something because I'm really feeling that itch that we'll probably talk more about. But you know what? Even if I can't, I'm, I already won reading the biography, just an incredible man. And, you know, I really hope that, um, you know, people will continue to remember him. So. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds, that sounds right on accurate. Um, well, I'm, I'm kind of reading a, 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 an inspirational story, I guess, from American history as well. It just happens to be, you know, this is not coordinated, uh, but it also happens to be sort of quote unquote research, you know, I'm not I'm not working on a writing project, but I'm reading a book that, you know, this anticipates what we'll talk about towards the end of the episode, what we're going to be getting into for our next episode. Um, but I am reading. So most people know about this through a very highly acclaimed and really excellent um, miniseries that was produced and aired on HBO. Oh, man, at least 10 years ago, I want to say 10, 15 years ago, ago called Band of Brothers which is about, yeah. um, if you haven't seen it, it's about, you know, a company in the 101st Airborne Division called E-Company or nicknamed Easy Company. Easy Company in the 506th Regiment of the 101st Airborne Division of the U.S. Army and kind of their uh, heroic deeds uh, in, the, in the latter years of World War II. It kind of follows this one company uh, literally from the D-Day invasion, June 6, 1944, all the way to when this same company happened to be the company that led and, you know, the, the capture of Hitler's kind of, you know, command post or, or I'm not sure if it was command post or where he resided in the final years of the war, but it was called the Eagle's Nest. It was up in the mountains in um, either Germany or Austria. I'm not, I should know that. But um, anyway, they, they were able to capture that. Uh, towards the very, very end of the war, but it just kind of follows them through this really heroic year or year and a half um, and, and their exploits. And it's just, you know, the series is incredible. And this is the book that was the foundation for the series uh, is by Stephen E. Ambrose, who is a very popular and well-known uh, American historian. He, he's passed away now. Uh, but it's actually the first book I've ever read by Stephen Ambrose, which I was sort of surprised even myself to realize because he's written a number of books that have been widely read. Um, Undaunted Courage, which is about Lewis and Clark. He wrote a huge book about D-Day. He wrote a biography of Eisenhower and then Band of Brothers. This is, you know, because the series is probably his most well-known book. Uh, but it's just an incredible, you know, you just follow this company. And they were really, you know, in the thick of combat for at least a year, you know, in the, in the European theater, you know, landing in, uh, uh, on the coasts in France and then going across France, up into Holland, and then eventually into Germany uh, through the winter of 1944 to 1945. Heavy, heavy, heavy casualties the whole time. So, you know, you're getting to know a lot of these young men who are in this company and, and a lot of them don't make it to the end of the book uh but it's based on you know hundreds of hours of interviews with the surviving members and it's really just gripping gripping stuff and it's all true you know uh and so it's, it's just really uh 
kind of interesting to immerse yourself in that that period of history and and uh, you know be inspired by the self sacrifice and the and the determination of these men who are you know between the ages of like eighteen nineteen and like twenty five. You know, I think the oldest ones were maybe around 30. So it's really kind of incredible to think, you know, of all that they went through before the age of about 30. So anyway, it's a great book. I'm about two thirds of the way through and I'm, I'm really glad to be reading. So there you go. Yeah, that's a great one. I, you know, believe it or not, I've never read that book or I don't think I've ever read anything by Stephen Ambrose and I've never seen the series. So we've talked about it a lot over the years. So, um, but you know, I one thing I have done though is spend some more time in the Washington D.C. area, just, just because my daughter happens to be going to college near D.C. You know, like like your two sons, and we've seen some memorials, and I've been to Arlington National Cemetery a few times um, recently. In fact, there's a there's a monument there to Ronald McNair and the Challenger uh, people that I didn't even know was there. Side note, oh, wow. that I'm really looking. I tried to visit the last time I was there, and I'm really looking forward to seeing that, but. But what I'm saying is, you know, even in Washington, D.C., you, you do, you know, you know very well, you do start to get a sense of what people sacrificed for our freedom in our country. And um, it must be really it must be really um, immersive and uh, startling and striking in so many ways to read like their really, you know, detailed story about those guys, you know, just a tremendous courage, great determination, et cetera, what they did for all of us, you know. So that's a great read. Yeah, it's great stuff. So there's a couple inspirational picks, you know, straight out of U.S. history for anybody who's interested in in that. And hopefully you find something there that you might uh, take a look at somewhere down the road. So take a quick break and then we're going to then we're going to, you know, I'm glad you mentioned Foster Mullins. We're going to dive into who this shadowy writer is, which is, you know, there's not a ton known about Foster Mullins, to be honest. I mean, he's kind of wrapped in his own mystery. But he left us. Right. <laughs> he, he left us with this very strange, unique, you know, fun kind of twisty, time bendy, you know, short novel, which we're going to get into in a minute. So, everybody, you know, this is the time of the show. You know, if you could get yourself a drink or a snack, but then when you come back, you know, be sure to buckle your safety belt because this one's going to be a wild ride. Yeah, or to quote Samuel L. Jackson in Jurassic Park, "Hang on to your bucks, butts." I screwed that but, up. Yeah. Man. Exactly. <laughs> so here we go in a couple seconds. Well, so, okay. So here's where we're going to start. You know, uh, it would be great. We don't have Foster Mullins here to interview because nobody knows where that guy is. Uh, he, he has this habit of disappearing and, you know, nobody really, I, I, I couldn't get in touch with him. I would love to have him on kind of a joint interview kind of thing. But, you know, since you guys seem to have a lot of affinity for each other and kind of a lot in common, but I would like to start a little bit uh, since you 
Jude Joseph Lovell are the subject of the interview here. We're going to, I'm just going to briefly mention, you know, so my brother Jude, he's been writing uh, basically his entire adult life. You know, we went to school together at Xavier University and then he served in the U.S. Army for five years, which by the way, we just passed Veterans Day. So I, I'm going to take this opportunity to wish you a belated happy Veterans Day and thank you for your service to the country. So that's, that's not, and I mean that sincerely. Thank you for being willing to, uh, stand on the line and, and serve. So there you go. Thank you. Thank you for saying that. It's an honor to serve. Yeah. Uh, and so after, but you know, I, you know, obviously I, I know Jude from, from the very beginning, but you know, even in the army, I think he was, you know, he was turning his mind towards becoming a writer. And I remember very, you being very determined as soon as you got out of the army, your five years were up and you kind of turned your, Put your, turned your sights on to going to school to look for creative writing and, and getting into, you know, trying to become a writer. So you did that, you know, I'm glossing over a lot of the history here, but you know, ever since then, when he finished his degree, got that MFA in creative writing, yeah, he's been writing uh, novels, short story collections, essays, reviews, as I mentioned before. Um, and Jude, I, I think what number? I think you have maybe 13 or 14 books. Is this number 13? What number? Is this, you know, sort of collaboration with Foster Mullins? What number would this be? This is book number 12. Okay. So number 12, as I said, he's, he's written almost everything he can write, but um, I'm just going to mention a couple of the previous novels and books. So he's written novels. The first one is called Blue Six, which is based on his time in the Army. He wrote another really fun, you know, sort of technological thriller called Deliver Me. Uh, there's a two-part historical novel that he's been working on for a number of years. The first book was released several years ago. Uh, that it, I guess it's sort of a duology, and that's called Only the Dying. And book one was called The Widow's Prayer. It was, uh, it's, it's kind of based loosely on the life of our grandfather. Uh, so there's that. And also, among many other books, he wrote a, a nonfiction book about Herman Melville and all of his work, which is really fascinating. And then even a young adult fantasy sort of adventure tale called Obsidian. So this is some of the books that Jude has written in the past. Most, if not all, of these are available on Amazon. It's kind of a dizzying variety. And he has a handful of uh, essay and review collections as well. So there's something for everybody there. That's a little look at, you know, Jude's writing career to date. And then, you know, I guess I, I put it this way. Along the way, um, Jude sort of, I'll say, gave birth in a way to this character named Foster <laughs> Mullins. And Foster Mullins has kind of taken on a life of his own. And now he's left us with this novel, which is called Time O'Clock. So I want to start with Foster Mullins. We're going to get right into the interview here. Well, let's start with this shadowy figure named Foster Mullins. As I said, not too much is known about him, um, but you did write about him previously in a short story that you wrote, which is called Foster Mullins, Unman, which is Unman is a acronym. And the, that, ac that it stands for Unpublished Novelists Masquerading as Novelists. I believe I have that right, right? Right. <laughs> okay. So that right there should be a tip off that, you know, even, you know, that there's some shadow around this figure, Foster Mullins, since he's, he's basically admitted that he's masquerading as something else. And uh, so 
I guess let's start with Foster Mullins and, you know, we'll kind of like peek behind the curtain now and get, get a little less meta, but you know, you, you invented the character and, and you wrote, first wrote about him a long time ago. And yet now he resurfaces many, many years later with this full length novel. Can you tell us like a little bit about how Foster Mullins, the character came to be? And then why do you think you went back to writing, you know, quote unquote, as Foster Mullins? What was it about the character that kind of threw you back into his mysterious web? <laughs> yeah, uh, Foster Mullins is a character that I invented, like you said, and I appreciate the intro and all the questions uh, very much. So thank you for all that. Um, Sure. Yeah, he, Foster Mullins. So I'm going to just, you know, tear down that wall. You know, Foster Mullins is me. I'm Foster Mullins. And I see him as kind of my sort of Richard Bachman, which is the famous pseudonym for Stephen King. <laughs> you yeah. know, published some names under. So um, what 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 I don't even know if you know this, but the, 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 the name Foster Mullins, I don't know exactly how Foster Mullins, a character came alive in my head, but actually, John, you're going to be surprised about this. If you don't remember dates all the way back to my time in the army. Um, because I, I remember I started writing a short story. And then uh, this goes back to like, I would put it somewhere around 1995 um, called Foster Mullins witnesses a tragedy. And it was about this guy who had the same physical characteristics as Foster Mullins, who was like ambling down a street in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, where our parents had moved to. And he sees a, a blow up you know and i remember starting um that story and at that time i was still really working on trying to figure out how to write short stories at all so it didn't get very far but the name stuck in my head for some reason because it's kind of a goofy name you know i've had at least one reader tell me that they don't like some of my character names including foster mullins but it stuck in my head and then okay so fast forward to when we were in graduate school when i was in graduate school in um so I went to school in New York uh, for creative writing between 1998 and 2000. And somewhere around 1999, I started another story uh, that I called Foster Mullins, Unman. And the character name of Foster Mullins came back to me and I started writing it. And it was like this goofy kind of wannabe writer, sort of like I was at the time, but just had slightly different physical characteristics. He was like tall, much taller than me, skinny kind of ropey and uh, I would say more brazen and daring than I am in real life. Right. So I wrote this story called Foster Mullins Unman. It was about a writer that wanted to, you know, who was so frustrated with getting stories rejected and having nobody give a crap about his writing that he decided to form this secret society called the un unpublished novelist masquerading as novelist, which is really goofy, which is kind of stupid, but he just liked this. And even his friends in the story thought it was stupid. <laughs> yeah. um, but Foster Mullins didn't care he was just frustrated and jaded and burnt out and he's like I'm going to just pretend I'm a novelist anyway so he decides to go on his own book tour even though he doesn't even really have a book <laughs> you know <laughs> and anyway I wrote this story it was really kind of goofy I thought it was funny I remember a lot of my peers in graduate school didn't think it was funny they thought Foster Mullins and all his friends were kind of annoying and then, but I liked it. And I, uh, there was a couple little innovations in it for me at the time that were different. And at the end of the story, not to give too much away, I'm sure there's not going to be a ton of people who are going to scramble back and read that story. Although it's in my book called Door in the Air, just for anybody who's 
dares to go back and check it out. In that story, though, at the very end, it had this ambiguous ending where Foster Mullins disappears, right? Right. So, um, and then to me, I thought it was fun to end it that way, but that was the end of Foster Mullins, and it completely was for 20 years, more than 20 years, right? So um, fast forward to now, I was struggling. uh, Well, when I say now, I'm talking about March or April of 2021. I was struggling and trying to write actually the second half of the historical novel you mentioned, um, the duology called Only the Dying. I was working on the second volume, which has been really giving me trouble for many years. And I kind of hit a brick wall in that. And I started to write what I thought of as kind of a noirish short story. And the character was a writer in the Bronx in New York, which is where my Foster Mullins story had taken place. But I didn't know when I started it that it was going to have anything to do with Foster Mullins. Then uh, I got about two or three pages into it and I sort of realized or recognized that the character was Foster. And I was very surprised by that. And I was like, am I actually writing about Foster Mullins again? You know, John's going to get a kick out of this because you and I have joked about the original Foster Mullins story for many years. And then I wrote a little bit further and suddenly I realized this is just something that happens with fiction writing and that you kind of have to be open to. I was actually in the shower, which is where a few ideas for this novel came to me. And I realized, you know, I'm, it's not, I'm not writing about Foster Mullins. I'm, the character is Foster Mullins. You know, the voice is Foster Mullins. And once I thought about that, it just became a fun thing for me. I realized I could publish a novel in a pseudonym, which is something I had never done. I could revive an old character that nobody knew, which would be fun kind of for me personally. And I feel like just to wrap up, it also gave me this kind of license in the story that I was just getting off the ground to kind of, once I realized it was Foster Mullins and it was the, the previous story was Zany, I thought anything goes in this book. And yeah. that was really liberating for me and it turned out to be a lot of fun. So I'll leave it there. Well, that's actually a great segue. Um, and it's, it, I wanted to start with some background about this whole character of Foster Mullins and, you know, where he came from and why right under that name. Um, but now we kind of, you know, so you gave us the background and kind of brought us up to this point. Now, now we're, now we get to the point of, you know, time o'clock appears. So I, I should have done this a little bit earlier, but I'm, I'm just going to, I'm going to describe the book a little bit, what the book is about ostensibly. And then we're going to have you read a passage from the book. How's that sound? Okay, cool. Yeah, that'd be cool. Okay. So, so you brought us the, you know, we just talked about where Foster Mullins came from, by the way, I think it's, I didn't even realize this, but I think it's just a perfect real life touch that this is a character that you were working on. Talk about meta with your, with your workshop group while you were getting your MFA and the fact that they all sort of responded negatively to it is just, <laughs> it's perfect. It's poetically perfect. I mean, it just, it really is like this character has taken on like his own life because that that's the only way that could have gone down. You know, if you know anything about the Foster <laughs> Mullins character, you, you'll, yeah, it's, it's, it gave me, it gave me like a kind of license to keep going that it, yeah, the fact that everybody exactly. hated it. Yeah, everybody hated it, thought it was stupid, and you know, uh, 
but also the idea, I don't think it's, it's really not that silly. The, the, you know, the acronym that you came up with because it, it, you know, from the very beginning, again, it's just like, he's not a man, he's an unman, you know, like, or he's, uh, he's masquerading as something else. And there's this whole era, era, you know, aura of mystery around the Foster Mullins character that I think is really interesting and adds to the fun, which we're going to get to in a minute. But so time o'clock is, you know, I would call it kind of a, like a, like a philosophical thriller. If you, okay. So you, you take a few things and you put them in the blender. What you get, what you get is time o'clock for me anyway. Like to me, it's like, sort of an existential sort of philosophical tale about a struggling writer, but there's also, it's also kind of like a noirish mystery um, with sort of uh, shadowy female figures that you don't know much about, but they're sort of intoxicating. There's a little bit of like, <laughs> there even aliens appear in this book briefly. <laughs> and then, you know, there may or may not be talking dogs. And there's a lot of surrealism in the book where we're kind of like reality itself you know, isn't totally clear what's real and what isn't. And, you know, I would say, you know, there's for some, there's some people who are, you know, either as readers or watchers of movies, for example, you know, I'll give you two examples. You take like a book that you described many times in the show, Winter's Tale, and there's a moment in Winter's Tale and it's a historical novel and all the, all the details feel right. But the guy's being chased on horseback across the Brooklyn bridge and he's being chased from both sides. And all of a sudden, the horse just takes off flying off the bridge. Right. So right. <laughs> in, in that moment, you know, kind of reality sort of slips away or, or bends somehow a little bit. And uh, my second example is a movie. And of course, it comes from the mind of David Lynch. So, either you know, David Lynch movies or you don't. But one of his movies is called Lost Highway. And you're following this character who's a jazz saxophonist through this kind of like strange mystery that he's embroiled in. And about midway through the movie, he gets arrested. He gets thrown into a jail cell. He, he lays down on the cot to sleep. Uh, the camera fades to black or something. There's music. When the camera comes back, you, you come back to him asleep on the cot. But he's a totally different person. And, you know, different actor, different person. And then the rest of the movie goes on from there. And you're following this character with no explanation at all. <laughs> okay? So my point is... There are readers or viewers that w are willing to run with that and, you know, don't mind if reality kind of takes a backseat to fantasy and it's just, they're intrigued by that. And there are some, like my wife is sort of like this, with, you know, the moment the horse flies off the bridge, it's like, okay, this doesn't make sense to me anymore, right? I'm out, yeah. <laughs> so, and then there are some like you and I, I think, are in this category who enjoy, you know, realism and fantasy or, or you know, so... Uh, that's just kind of a word about this. This book is firmly in the David Lynch sort of side of things. You know, there are things that happen that you can't really explain. I find found them entertaining. You know, you just you're just kind of left to un, you know kind of wonder. Okay, was this real? Was it not real? Is any of this real? And you know, much like a David Lynch movie, and that's how I would characterize this book. Um, it's very much in that vein, and I find that to be fun and interesting. But you know, some some readers. If you're strictly a realism person, it may not be for you. But if you're willing to kind of go along for the ride, this book is a fun ride. And it involves Foster Mullins, who is a struggling writer living in the Bronx, um, living in kind of a Hispanic section of the Bronx, I guess you could say. There's a knock on his door at his apartment in the middle of the night. 
when he's working, you know, struggling to write some fiction or write a story. There's a beautiful young woman, Hispanic woman at the door who somehow kind of hurt, doesn't really know him, heard he's a writer, asks her to help, asks him to help her write a, basically a Dear John letter to break up with somebody. A little bit of Cyrano de Bergerac almost in there. And he's never met her before. He gets this mysterious request, but he's immediately, you know, entranced by the woman. And so, of course, he agrees. And well, I think it's, I, I don't think it's too much to say that he works on this through most of the night, through the nebulous hours of the small hours of, of the night, which you come to learn through the book is what, what the book refers to as time o'clock, which is this sort of period in the night where things just feel a little bit off, let's say. He goes, he goes back down to the woman's apartment and he goes to deliver the pages that he's worked on, finds the door ajar, and he walks in and he finds the young woman murdered. So there's your murder mystery element. And uh, the book kind of takes off from there. But then from there, it really goes into a lot of strange and twisty and interesting directions uh, that involve the police, that involve other tenants in the building, that involve the building itself and what might be going on in the building. And um, it also very much involves Foster's own writing and you know ideas that are swimming around in his head. So it's a really fun kind of twisty mystery ride is how I would describe it. And that's, that's sort of what's the book, what the book is about. Um, so I hope that was, it's kind of hard to, this book is strange and fun and unusual. So it's a little bit hard to describe it, you know, in quote unquote conventional terms, but I hope I did a decent job. Is there anything that I missed that you think is critical in order to set up? Uh, you're going to read a little bit from the book just to give our listeners sort of a flavor for it. Right. No, no, I think you did a good job because you didn't say anything that was that was not contained in the book description. Yeah, it just has that kind of setup that you just described. And uh, yeah, in a minute here, I'll do a little reading from it. Yeah, well, I, I think I think we're ready. I think um, I just want to give uh, listeners a sense of what what the book sort of feels like, what it feels like to read it. So I thought, you know, we would start with you reading a little bit from it, just kind of give them that flavor. Okay, great. Yeah, no, thank you for letting me do it. So I'm calling an audible here, John, because the I was originally going to read the first few pages of the book, but um, in your setup there, you more or less covered it, which I think I feel like I should have realized because that was kind of the description of the book that's available to anybody. You know, when you go up and look the book online, you know that there was a knock at the door and he, he finds the woman murdered. So where I'm going to pick this up, well, first, briefly, I'm going to mention the uh, epigraph to the book, and then I'm going to pick this up actually with the second chapter, and I'm just going to read a few pages. So the second chapter introduces uh, a new character to the story. So, Great. all right. So the, the epigraph of the book, I just thought it was uh, kind of fun to let people know about because we are now going to be transported to a sort of seedy area of the Bronx um, near the turn of the 21st century. And it's like this like crappy apartment building. So I found this lyric from a song by Bob Dylan. So the epigraph goes, this place ain't doing me any good, which is from Bob Dylan's song, Things Have Changed. I love that. <laughs> so now I'm going to pick it up with just a brief reading from chapter two. This is right after Foster Mullins has found um, the woman in the book whose name is Luz murdered in her apartment. So here we go. Boston Charlie had warned me, or tried to, not to get involved. He didn't know me anything. 
we were just sort of friendly, mainly because I wandered around the building late at night while he was on his shift. This had been going on since I had started subletting the place from a guy called Rosado. But I believe he kind of took a liking to me. He saw himself as an unofficial guardian of some kind, a protector. I never asked him to keep an eye out, and he never said anything to me about it. But it still gave me a kind of good feeling. Like at least somebody around La Celda, which is the Spanish nickname for the apartment building, means like a prison. Like at least somebody around La Celda was in my corner. When I was first thinking about subletting up here, virtually everybody I knew told me I was nuts. Did I even know a word of Spanish? Nah, I'd say I'll be fine. They'll greet me like a neighbor. That's not quite how it happened exactly, but I'm still here. <laughs> Boston Charlie, he's the night custodian of the place. Sometimes we call him the warden, or if they are feeling somewhat less cynical, the watchman. But most of us just call him Boston Charlie. The first thing you got to know is if you're going to hang out with Boston Charlie is that not only is he not from Boston, but he doesn't have a blasted thing to do with it. I'll get to that. Anyway, Boston Charlie's a black man, nearly 50 years old at the time, with a hip injury that can be tied back to something that befell him in a crappy place halfway around the world called the Mekong Delta. Not your typical story, because he was not a ground soldier, but some sort of airman working in the cargo hold of a C-130 aircraft that had been taken down over the jungle. He was pulled from that alive somehow. This happened only a week and a half before he was supposed to ship home. Some folks ask me, Charlie said to me many times, do I wonder why it didn't up and happen to me six weeks in instead of 11 months? You know what I tell them? You say, I was just happy enough not to come home in a box, I tell him. You're goddamn right, he would say. I'm not sure how many times he and I have had that exchange. Anyway, Boston Charlie is about five foot four inches tall on a good day, stocky and muscular, bald but for an almost entirely white stripe of hair around the back of his skull, but still, but a still black mustache, small dark eyes, and a flat nose that looks like it got worked over many times. God only knew where. Other than that, here's what I know about him. He loves Miles Davis. He wanted to play jazz in the big city. Originally born in North Carolina, where so far as I knew, he was raised up by a small family. He was called up in 1969. Shipped home from Vietnam. He rehabbed in D.C. and then made his way north to New York. His only intention for his life being to play jazz in clubs. He was only 20 at the time. He's been on his own here in the city ever since. No wife, no family left. He says when he got to New York, it was late 1970. He pawned off some of his NOM gear along with a few medals for a secondhand tenor sax. The instrument had a card case on it with an old timey sticker that read Boston. So the first time he made his way into a Harlem club to play uninvited, a couple of the old timers immediately called him Boston Charlie and the name hung on him like wallpaper. Did you even know how to play that thing? I had asked him early on after we met. Well, two of my uncles played big band when I was a kid, holdovers from the swing craze. And then I moved to Atlanta. I was only 16. I worked tables at a place called Davy's Birdcage, which was an underground jazz joint. I learned my way around there. Well, that's about all I know about Boston Charlie's musical, musical education. I don't know exactly what learn my way around means. And I never really could get up the guts to ask him how it all turned out up here between 1970 and now, I mean. 
I know he did make his way to onto a stage once or twice with Miles himself, with a couple of jazz fusion outfits post bitches brew, he says, as if that clarifies things. <laughs> Although I don't know how it all went down, and obviously he never quite took off. I could tell Charlie was an artist by temperament, regardless of where he ended up. He had this way about him at times, hard to articulate, like he was within earshot of a Can you hear me? Yes. Okay, I I, I missed part of that. I, I, I don't know if it recorded or not. All right, I'll just continue going. Go ahead. He had this way about him at times, hard to articulate, like he was within earshot of a distant rhythm nobody else was hearing. There was music in his head perpetually. If he didn't know he was being watched, he had a way of moving around, especially with a mop or a broom. But then again, I never could quite be sure if that was more because of whatever had befallen him or his hip joint when his plane went down. He had something else about him. It wasn't quite physical. Something in those little dark eyes he had, he could turn his head suddenly and stare off like he was tuned to something, another world, some wayward form of energy that others could not perceive. And when he met me the first time, I won't forget this, he said he sensed a kind of kinship with me, like I knew something too about whatever he saw around him. I never knew what he meant, but he asserted this with such authority that I dared not question it, and I didn't want to anyway. Right away, we were friends. He would say only that it had something to do with the fact that I aspired to write, that I did write. We both hunting after the same thing, he told me once, but he left it there for me to puzzle it out. So there you go. Well, that's great. And that, and that passage, you know, introduces us to uh, one of a number of, uh, I would say there's mysterious characters that you, that are in this place that you've nicknamed or Foster Mullins nicknamed La Celda, which is the, you know, basically a prison. Um, but you meet a few characters along the way in this book that that just there just seems to be something a little bit like Foster himself. There's something more than meets the eye. It may at times feel a little sinister. It may not. But nobody quite, you know, presents themselves in this short novel, you know, fully accurately. It feels like, you know, there's more going on with each of the characters that you don't know. And in some cases, you know. You may or may not find out what that is, or it might just be a feeling you get, just like in real life, maybe about somebody. But Boston Charlie is one of them, and they're, you know, that's kind of a. I found him to be sort of a sort of a vivid, you know, side character, and uh, you know, we'll, we may get back to him at some <laughs> point. Um, but I want to talk. You know, we're getting to the point where we need to kind of get into the spoiler part of the interview, and there's a few things, you know, that I wanted to get to that we may or may not be able to get to. I want to talk just a little bit, though, about like, you know, I, we talked a little bit about this or I did in my setup. You know, uh, there seem to be a lot of sort of influences, I guess, or, you know, uh, that are into the mix in the writing of this story. You know, uh, for example, you know, I already mentioned that, you know, the setup in particular, the first like, you know, 30 pages of the book to me felt very much like sort of classic noir. I mean, literally the knock at the door, 
you got, he's not a detective, but he's a writer, but he's in his quote unquote office. There's a knock at the door. He opens up the door and there's this, you know, almost like silhouetted in the light. There's this gorgeous figure of this mysterious woman, right. you know, <laughs> and um, she's, she gives him this assignment. And of course he can't turn it down because he wants to know, you know, more about her. And he gets embroiled into just like so many, awards, you know, he gets embroiled in basically this huge mess because of this, the allure of this one mysterious female figure. Um, but then as you go along in the book, you know, there are, it gets, I would, the word I would use is again, is Lynchian, you know, there are moments where it just, you know, reality itself kind of seems to shift. We didn't even get into this, but, you know, Foster Mullins is writing stories. And at one point, you know, it kind of dives into a story that he's writing. So there's a quote unquote story within the story, you know, <laughs> that has nothing to do with the rest of the book. <laughs> and then there's a murder mystery, you know, like kind of and, and, and there's all, you know, there's also we're, we're going quickly through it all because just for a matter of time. But, you know, the NYPD gets involved and these two detectives get involved. So you have several I thought very amusing scenes, like basically interrogation scenes where the detectives are trying to get information out of Foster Mullins. And I thought that gave you a chance to kind of riff on, you know, TV cop shows and that kind of dialogue. It's <laughs> right. Very, very funny. So I wanted to just ask you, like, what, are, what to you are some of the elements or influences and or elements that, you know, are, are into the mix of this book? Oh, uh, yeah. Well, it's so it's a lot, as you can as you're, you know, maybe can get from the way you're describing it. And I think you're accurately describing it, but it, so it's varied and sundry. Right. Uh, but um, so right. there were a few, there were a few, I don't know if this is getting into another question. There are a few um, writers that were in the sort of the back of my mind, but there were other sort of art forms almost as well that kind of, you know, were thrown into the blender, so to speak. So you're right. It begins with a very noir setup. And that was uh, pretty, you know, you can draw a straight line between sort of where my mind was and what I was reading at the time, at least to the beginning of the story. Uh, so back in like March and April, uh, there were two, big, two books in particular that I was reading that both would have come up on the show at one point or another. One was a straight up noir omnibus, three novels by somebody named Cornell Woolrich, who was a uh, oh, yeah. classic classic noir writer best known for he wrote the short novel that the alfred hitchcock's rear window was based on which was one of the uh the, the novels in that omnibus i read so i read some books by him and then i read uh john you you champion all the time and rightly so the new york review press That's the right. new york review books press and i had read a noir book from their catalog by a, a female writer Named Dorothy Hayes, I think it is Hayes or Hughes, might be Hughes. Hughes, Hughes, yeah. And she wrote a novel, a noir novel called *In a Lonely Place*, which is a pretty well-known noir novel, and also was made into a well-known film, I believe, with Humphrey Bogart. If I'm not wrong. Yeah, I've, um, I've seen that movie. It's great. Yeah, that's supposed to be a really good um, one. So I wrote, read those somewhere around the same time, and I did kind of sit down to try a noir story, but with some trepidation because I knew, and I still feel this way. We just had an episode a couple, couple episodes ago, or I guess the last one, 39 about crime novels. And I knew at least right. up to this point, like I, I didn't, you know, I either know quote unquote, or don't feel like I know enough 
to be able to write a well-plotted crime novel. So I really wasn't sure that I could write a really straight up noir story, you know, with all its twists and turns and the mystery involved. But I want, I was really intrigued by the vibe. So I thought I would throw myself into a noirish scenario. So that those were noir was a direct influence on the start of the book. And I, I'd like to think I kept some of the noir feeling or the crime novel feeling throughout the book, but it also, you know, sort of eventually went in other directions. And then uh, a couple other influences for one reason or another were um, two surrealist paintings that figure heavily into the book. One, well, you, I guess you wouldn't call Vincent van Gogh's Starry Night surrealist. Um, nobody thinks of it as surreal painting, but I could argue that there are some surreal elements to it in a way, or at least a little bit of a surreal vibe in that, you know, starry, sleepy French village. Um, yep. I had seen that at the New York in New York City recently. So that was in my mind. And then uh, definitely a surrealist image called The Persistence of Memory by Salvador Dali and another one called um, Crucifixion and in parentheses Corpus Hypercubicus, which is another um, surrealist painting by Salvador Dali, um, a, a figure of the crucifixion, basically. Those got into my mind and they found their way into the novel. And then part of the way through composing the novel, I stumbled on that police song from the beginning wrapped around your finger, which yes. I think has a really um, enchanting and kind of spell like vibe to it. That song, believe it or not, has informed a lot of my life and also informed the book. If I could do a book trailer or a film, if it was made into a film, you know, just in my imagination, uh, that would be the music over the trailer. So, Th those kind of elements were all thrown into the blender and all of them, I would say had fa fairly strong influence on what I was doing. So, and then I don't know if you, there's, there's a couple of writers I was thinking of too, but I don't know if that's a different question. Well, I was going to mention and and we need to take a break in a few minutes, but I was going to mention, you know, there's a writer that you've talked about. I think it links back to, you know, this podcast, there's a writer you've talked about quite a bit and sort of championed on this show Jose Saramago from Portugal. And one of the one of the real hallmarks of his writing is that he's constantly a term that most of us would recognize comes from the movie industry again, but quote unquote breaking the fourth wall. So the author will speak directly either about what he's writing or about what's going on in the in the in the novel or about anything really, you know, and just kind of like in these asides that just kind of happen throughout the book and you just sort of, again, you just need either you roll with that or you don't, but Saramago does that all the time. And I know that's an element of his pro style that you really like. And you definitely have picked up and there are others that do it too, but by the you know, book that we just reviewed a couple episodes ago, leave the world behind Ruman Alam does that. Well, where he'll comment as the writer on his own story. Yeah. Great and, point. Yeah. Um, and he does it a lot. And it's, it, I think that makes a book, quite interesting because it gives you these hints of things that may are going on in the background that you may or may not be aware of. But so you either consciously or unconsciously, I think it's safe to say that you've picked up on certainly that those elements in this book, because there's a lot of like commentary uh, on the book itself on, and especially, you know, we're going to get to this in a few minutes, but especially on, the act of writing and being a writer, there's a lot of just comments that are made to the reader 
that are sort of outside the action going on in itself. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I would say um, just to segue from that a little, well, first of all, you're right. And, uh, you know, some readers don't like, as you've been saying, wouldn't have much patience for all the side comments or editorializing. I would say in my case, I am a reader that really likes it. Um, I learned a long time ago in writing fiction that, you know, it's the, the, the kind of work that is easiest to write, not easiest in terms of effort, but easiest in terms of motivation and drive to finish a story is the kind that you enjoy yourself. So, you know, I didn't worry too much about all the editorializing. I thought, well, at least I'll think it's fun, <laughs> you know, but, but I did pick up on a lot of that from Jose Saramago. And then just really briefly, there were two other writers that I would say were heavily influential in this book. And it's funny because one of them, I don't even really like that much. And the other one I do like. So for me, there was, um, a little bit of the, the New York writer, Paul Auster in this book, who's mm -hmm. written a lot of mysterious and twisty tales um, throughout several decades. Yeah. Set in New York. Like I'm not saying that this is an Auster like New York novel, but his influence is there for sure in the yep. writing of this book. And then uh, another writer I, I don't like that much, but, and we've talked about him many times also, um, not from the United States, but I do feel like I've learned a lot from is the Japanese novelist Haruki Murakami. And he was very much a presence in this book, I have to say, because he, not at length, but he, well, first of all, he's written one or two sort of noirish one night kind of tales. This isn't really a one night book, but um, there's one in particular called, um, oh gosh, I always forget the name of it, but um, After Dark, I think it is. But it's like a, a slim novel by Murakami that's set in the course of one night and it's twisty and weird. But mainly because we talked about him before, so I don't have to go on at length. Haruki writes fiction that has many weird Lynchian twists and turns, and he does not explain them to the reader. He doesn't feel the need to, and he just uh, allows readers to take them as they are. And um, I, I feel like I don't I can't speak for him, but I feel like in some way he feels that it's a, a reflection of the, the mysteries and the sometimes baffling nature of life in this modern era. So I learned from him that you do not you can put weird stuff in your book. You don't have to explain why it's there or what it is. So he was a big influence on this story also. Yeah, you know, now that some of those I would have guessed and some of those I wouldn't, now that you lay it all out, you know, there are quite a number of influences, you know, that are into the the strange brew of this short novel. And I think, you know, if, if nothing else for, as we segue into a break here, if nothing else for readers, you know, you're going to find, you find all these elements. You also find, I mean, there's a little bit of like heavy metal music that works its way into it. There's, um, <laughs> you know, intergalactic, you know, warfare and drama you know <laughs> there may or may not be talking animals as you say uh there's a lot of there's a bunch in the book that's about uh about these paintings not a bunch but like they these paintings appear and they have surrealistic elements to them that may or may not sort of bleed into the into the world of the novel and uh there's even some um you know traditional uh, lore and kind of prayers from the mexican day of the dead you know, I don't want to say too much, but there's a, there's quite a lot in this short book that I think there's, you know, uh, 
I found it to be, you know, the pages turn quickly because you just don't have any idea of what's going on. And there's this mysterious atmosphere in this, you know, rundown, um, you know, apartment high rise in the Bronx. And as I mentioned before, there's some characters that kind of flit in and out and you, and you don't really, you're not sure what they're up to, but it doesn't necessarily feel that good. And I think all these elements just kind of, you know, keep you, keep the reader moving along because if you're just curious as to where this weird <laughs> trippy concoction is going to go. And that's, uh, I think that's as good a place as any to kind of break off for the first part. Um, it's an intriguing book. I, I, I really hope readers will check it out, take a chance on it. Uh, it's kind of cousin actually, of, and we don't have time to get into this, but of your other kind of quote unquote short thriller, Deliver Me. Be, which is a totally different book, but it all happens in one night and takes all kinds of weird twists and turns. So these books are kind of like cousins in a way and we'd make a fun little package for somebody who likes experimental fiction to kind of like lump those two together and just, you know, go on a couple weird trips. <laughs> you know, you could do a lot right. worse than, than Deliver Me and Time O'Clock by Jude Joseph Lovell and Mr. Foster Mullins. So... Well, cool. We're gonna. I think we should take a break, and then we'll come back, and we'll get we'll get a little bit more into the some of the plot points and the mysteries of the novel itself. So, for those of you who have read the book or come back to this show, join us for the second part here in just a few minutes. All right. Thanks. Hey, we're back. Yes. So, welcome to part two of the interview with uh, Jude Joseph Lovell. Again, we didn't, we weren't able to get get in touch with Foster Mullins to participate in this episode, but we're here with <laughs> Mr. Mr. Jude Lovell, and uh, now we're going to talk a little bit more about the book in in detail. So, this this part again would be better uh, listen to if you've already read the book Time O'Clock. Um, you still with me? Yeah. Can I make one quick comment on something you said just at the end there? Sure. Yeah, I'll keep it short because you're right. We don't have time. But you brought up the that it's kind of a cousin to my previous novel called Deliver Me. And yeah. I, I just want to say I'm not going to talk about Deliver Me. I do think they're both fun reads that could be kind of read in tandem. But it was fun. That element of it was fun because when I was a certain distance into Time O'Clock and I sort of figured out that they were both kind of they do sort of feel like they're in the same universe although they're separated by 20 years and there is one tiny little easter egg that connects them both but you know i'll leave that to the millions of readers that are going to read both books you know to, to figure that out but um it was fun because as i've said many times in the show one of my great heroes is stephen king and i thought back to the 90s when and you're going to be familiar with this john when he he had this famous pseudonym of course richard bachman who <laughs> 
was responsible for like the running man and thinner and other books that people know that are actually by Stephen King. And he kind of like fed into this mystique of Richard Bachman for a while. But there was one day in the nineties that the brainiacs behind his operation thought that they should, because he's so prolific, they released two novels on the same day that were one was by Stephen King and one was, one was by Richard Bachman and they were called um, desperation and, um, Oh gosh, it's slipping in. What's the other one? The Regulators. Regulators. Yeah. And the Regulators. They were both kind of silly books, but they were like companion books written by King and his pseudonym. Now, obviously, I wasn't releasing them on the same day. But once I thought of that, I thought of, man, this is kind of my Regulators and Desperation. So that was fun. So that's all I wanted to say. Well, I didn't really think about it even going into this interview either quite that way, but they really, it would be like a fun, you know, in a perfect world you get little like a hardcover, you know, kind of like case and put these two together and just market them as like, you know, two different wild rides. I mean, it, it, there are similarities in the way the books feel, but. Um, and they're a similar length, just to say. Yeah, they're both short. So I encourage, you know, if you're at all intrigued by Time O'Clock, go look up Deliver Me too. I thought that, that book was a lot of fun. It's very strange. They're both strange, but, you know, you're an odd duck, so no one should be surprised <laughs> at this point. And this Thank is your you. twin brother saying that. So, you know, yeah. you do the math. Really weird, that guy. Yeah, you do the math. Um, okay, so this is where we're going to get a little bit more into the, you know, spoilerific with the book. But before we do that, I have a, you know, I sent you some notes about what I was going to cover in this interview just so you'd be prepared. But there's, I deliberately left one question off. So you're going to get a little bit of a curveball here. All right. Like, it's not really a question even. It's just uh, something that I thought of that occurred to me that I wanted to run by you and just get you to comment on. And um, going back to the character of Foster Mullins, and you already described how he first appeared in, you know, a couple of short stories that you wrote a number of years ago. But it sort of occurred, I have a theory going about uh, the story Foster Mullins Unman and this novel that he later generated, Time O'Clock, and kind of, to me, both of these stories, what really strikes me, and I've read, I've read both the story and the novel now at least twice each. And I think you could say that what, what these two, you know, the story and the novel, what they're really getting at is they are about writing, about being a writer and about the perplexing, vexing, sometimes frustrating challenge of being a writer, really. I think that's... Mm-hmm. I think that's really what you're getting at in these kind of fun, twisty stories. And my theory goes a little like, like this. So Foster Mullins, Unman, that story was written, if not while you were getting the MFA, maybe a little bit after. I don't, I don't quite remember the timeline. But it almost feels like in that story about, you know, quote unquote, failed writer, it's almost like you sort of like working through for yourself or kind of justifying to yourself why you should continue to pursue this, why you should pursue that MFA, why you should try to become a writer. It's mm-hmm. kind of like you're, this story sort of is like presents that argument to yourself in a way um, through this story of Foster Mullins and all his rejection slips and stuff. It's kind of like, well, why do I keep doing this? And this is kind of like your answer to that to yourself. Whereas I realized with time o'clock, it felt to me like, and maybe I'm thinking about this too much or maybe it's just because I'm your brother and you know I've been kind of alongside you for this whole journey but it almost feels to me like okay with time o'clock you're now kind of answering that question for everyone else like 
why do I write? You know, what is the point of all this? Well, this is in a weird way, kind of like an answer to that, you know, and I, I don't even know what the answer is, which is fitting because it's, you know, <laughs> it's perfect. But that was my theory. Like, like you know, it's almost, and I know you wouldn't have consciously done this and this gets into, you know, what drives you to write in the first place. But it's like the one story felt like a, it's kind of like you're explaining to yourself or justifying why you do it. And then, and the time o'clock is like, saying to everyone else, to the rest of the world, like, you know, this is what writers do. And this is our characters follow us around. And this is my justification for why it's something worth doing as twisted as it may seem. I don't know. That was kind of just a, a thought that occurred to me after reading them both. I just wondered if you had any comments on that. Well, I, I, so I didn't follow that all through myself, but I think, you know, this is why, you know, I, when I tease this, episode i was like john's a very good reader <laughs> this is the kind of thing i mean but i don't think i would have been capable of doing that you know because i'm the author right so you know we need somebody with a little bit more distance however i think you're really right about something because i was trying to think about when i was finishing up time o'clock um i was thinking you know what what would i even say this story is about it's not really a noir murder mystery uh you know since we're in the second half of the episode you know, if you're counting on like a really tied up solution to the story, you, you may not get one. Yeah. <laughs> you may not be completely satisfied if you haven't figured that out so far. So I couldn't really call it a straight, you know, it's not a crime novel, it's not a noir novel. There's usually a, a, a nicer fix and solution. And in my mind, those kind of books are smarter than this book is. But when I did think about it, I thought this book is really about storytelling and writing. So I agree with you there. And it's interesting, John, like to go back, like I never thought of Foster Mullins' Unman, the short story, as one of my best pieces of work. You know, I, I didn't get a great reaction to it. I did from some family members. I remember my sister, you loved it. And Alice, our younger sister, my sister, our younger sister, she loved that story at the time, you know, but it's like 21 years ago. Right. But but I think that original story was also the same thing. I, and that's a little bit more clear to understand i'm not expecting a lot of people to go back and read it but the you know it was about a struggling writer in an mfa program which i was at the time but i remember like to me even 21 years ago there was a deeper subtext to that story for example i remember coming up with the term unman and it was just ridiculous and my i remember my classmates really really kind of ripped on that you know un, unpublished novelists masquerading as novelists I thought that was just fun and ha ha ha. But actually, I have to be honest, and this might subject me to more ridicule. I don't know. But <laughs> to me, that name had a deep, deeper subtext. And what I was struggling with at the time was, if you follow me, the character and myself was trying to pursue creative writing as like a possibly a career or like something they could really do. And for me, I, and I talked, discussed this a lot with my father our father at the time that I went to the program, I felt like writing was not just a thing I was into, but kind of almost a vocation, something that I was called to do. And I still feel about it that way today, but yep. I have not made a living off it and I have not made like millions off it. So for me, it's always been a struggle. If I can't do it as like my main livelihood, or if I'm not successful making a whole career out of being a fiction writer or nonfiction writer, in a way, I thought, and this is a little dramatic, but if you 
feel like you have a vocation, John. And you and I were at that time sort of young men and young men at that age are trying to figure out what they're here for. So I felt like I had a calling and I was pursuing it. But if I could not succeed at it, was I really a man? If I succeeded at what I thought I was called to do, or if I failed to see, succeed at what I was called to do, was I a man or was I, in fact, an unman, not a man? Yeah. So to me, that phrase, even though it was kind of silly, had some double meaning. And I allowed that double meaning to play on my mind writing that story. And it sort of was in the background while writing Time O'Clock, even though, you know, unman doesn't get brought up much. But it's a part of that character. So I think you're right in your read. It is about creativity, writing, storytelling, and how you do it and what it means. Yeah, and, I, and one of the reasons that theory kind of, you know, came to me is because uh, there are just so, it's so conspicuous. There's so many examples mm -hmm. in this book of when, you know, you kind of interject and you know, talk about the act of writing that after a while, you're and certainly my second read through. I'm like, well, you know, that, that just, that's just a really strong, you know, not theme, but it's just aspect of this book that you, you just can't ignore. And, um, you know, there's interesting layers to, you know, you say a number of times in the book, you make Foster Mullins, you know, the protagonist of the book and the point of view that we get in the book, you know, uh, talks about how you create these characters and then they kind of follow you around. And then that, lit that again, this is the second part of the interview, but that literally starts to happen. You know, he's writing a book about a dog that starts talking, you know, or he's writing mm -hmm. a story. Foster Mullins right. is my dog's a philosopher. I think it's called. And a few times in the, in the, in the book, he turns around and there's a dog standing on its hind legs very strangely and starts saying things to him. <laughs> or, or mouthing things to him and, and you know and he's just like what the hell you know um but you know there's and, and again you know you even uh you decide to share a segment of a story within the story a totally different story that foster mullins is is working on uh, and and you kind of like in the novel you say you know there's uh it's almost like you justify including it because you're saying, look, when you when you come up with an idea, um, you know, you want to you want to you want to honor that even if it never becomes a finished story, you kind of want to honor its existence somehow. So I'm right. going to explain part of the story here. So there are just moments in the book where, you know, you talk about the act of writing. And I, I thought I, I just think that's an interesting, you know, sort of subtext to the whole thing and, you know, what might be going on at a deeper level through this whole thing in terms of, you know, how it's related to you as the creator, but we can move on from that. You know, we, there's a lot of things I want to get into. Um, one of which is we got to talk about the flashing green light. Okay. So <laughs> there is a motif or a recurring thing throughout this book where every once in a while, there'll be a flash of green light. And I've read the book twice and I'm not, I'm still not, I'm not totally sure if, if that flash actually indicates sort of like a shift in the timeline or in reality somehow, but it keeps happening. Usually, you know, Foster Mullins is the only character who sees it, but then late in the book, uh, there are a couple of other characters who see it. So um, 
I just w- I wanted to unpack that a little bit. I'm not going to sit here. I don't think you're going to say exactly what that light is or what it means. But what about that idea? Where did that idea come from? And what do you, if, if not what it means, what does it sort of signify, I guess, you know, in the story? Or why did you decide to use that particular device? And that may be hard to answer because uh, not from a spoiler point of view, but just from, you know, maybe it was just, you know, kind of a almost a subconscious idea that you had. Well, it's not hard to answer how it got in there. It is hard to answer what it's doing there. <laughs> you yeah. know, like, um, so I'll tell you, um, the reason why it's in the book at all is because it was in the original story of Foster Mullins Unman. So I went back early on when I sort of realized that I was writing about Foster Mullins and I actually reread the story from 1999. And in the original story, Foster Mullins, the character says he's writing a story called My Dog's a Philosopher. And in that story within the story, if you're following me, in Foster Mullins' story, in the original story about Foster Mullins, it's about a bank teller. And the bank teller um, has a dog. And one night, a green comet flashes, flashes through the sky. And in the morning, he wakes up and he finds his dog literally philosophizing on the, on the front porch, like giving a <laughs> philosophical monologue. So, <laughs> And a specific one, too, from like Kierkegaard or something. <laughs> Kierkegaard, yeah. And, uh, and there's a specific, uh, I'll talk in a minute, there's a specific philosopher that comes into Time O'Clock as well. I don't know if you and I talked about this or if you know this. But when I, when I read, I realized the two characters were linked. I read the original story to give me some inspiration and ideas. And I decided I'm going to put the green light into my new story. But I made it just a flashing light instead of a comet. So that's about all I know about that light. I have no idea what it is why it's in there but i decided i'm just gonna because i knew quickly that like i said i started as a noir tale i didn't think i could write a straight up noir by sort of by the numbers i opened it up a little bit it became a story about foster mullins and writing and creativity and then i was like all bets are off i can do whatever i want so i put the green light in there and it was sort of meant to toy with time or at least with the reader's sense of what time it is and i just let it rip you know, but, you know, and then I just put it in wherever I felt like it should go in. And I don't have any other explanation beyond that as to what it does to events or what it means. You know, uh, you can take it sort of as it is. But then I also worked in, I don't know, I, I wanted to say this earlier, I don't know if because we're in the sort of the spoiler half. So there, I connected it in one place to the to the talking dog which in time o'clock, the dog is talking and walking. And in the original story, the, the dog in that story was waxing on Kierkegaard. In time o'clock, the dog is talking, quoting St. Augustine, who wrote a lot of philosophical writings about time. Yep. So the dog is coming down a hallway and he starts saying things about time that come from St. Augustine. And I thought that works because of and how time was an element of the whole story. 
So it was just riffing on a weird idea. That's well, all that, it really was. That's fascinating uh, that to get that St. Augustine in there because I, it's just another kind of interesting element. You know, uh, I didn't actually realize that, but, you know, I do, I, I read St. Augustine's Confessions many years ago, but one of the, uh, you, you and I have talked about this off air. One of the sections of the book that really stuck out to me, I remember to this day, is he has a whole chapter about with his thoughts about time. And it, yeah. it is, it's very, very deep, but really interesting. And he also has another riff on memory, which is related. Um obviously but uh that's also just fascinating but that's a really interesting element to throw into the mix so you, again you know listeners and readers can see that you know it's a real grab bag of influences for everything from the sublime to the ridiculous you know but uh <laughs> yeah. yeah i i didn't i didn't think of this and maybe i'm sure you didn't either but you know like you and i have both seen this but there's just as a side note you know there was a really I think great and fun and fascinating indie science fiction movie, maybe about six, seven, ten years ago, called Coherence. And I don't want to spoil that for people. You know, I think I think you can find it on Amazon. But it's a really fun, like you know, twisty story, kind of like this one, that involves a comet going over this neighborhood. And uh -huh. when the comet goes over, let's just say strange things may be going on you know there, there there may be an impact on reality itself when this comic goes over the neighborhood and it kind of explores that idea but you don't find that out until what the cause is until like the very end but you know that's a really fun and interesting movie and that's and that's the kind of story that this is so it's like you know if, if a science fiction movie can do that why can't a little short novel do something like what you're describing it's just you know it's just an element that takes a story into sort of like mysterious, almost science fiction-y directions that I thought was a lot of fun. Um, I also thought Thank it was you. just a, yeah, just sort of a side note. The second time I read it, you described these, you know, the, the, the two Dali pictures in particular, paintings in particular, they come up again and again. When you're describing the one about the crucifixion, Foster Mullins walks by it several times and he says he, he it feels like there's almost a fourth dimension opening up. Like mm -hmm. he comments, like there's almost there seem to be more dimensions in this in this painting than three, and I kind of it kind of occurred to me that that's like almost like whether it's again whether it's conscious or not, like kind of a sly nod to what's going on in this story. It's like there may be a whole other dimension, you know, to the proceedings in this novel that that may or may not be you know opening up here. It's just kind of like this additional commentary on what's going on in the book that I thought was kind of an interesting idea. And even oh, at one time, I love, I, I love that, John, cause I never thought of that. I didn't think of that. Um, well, see, that's, it's really, it's mentioned, you know, three or four times. And then at one point he even, he thinks he sees one of the characters in the book in the painting. And so it's this kind of bleeding from one sort of reality into, or timeline into another that I thought it was just another motif that really, you know, kind of, uh, it's it sort of worked for me. Well, that makes me want to, there's something I wanted to say, but I don't know if you wanted to throw out another question or take it a different, there's something I want to say at some point and I can do it briefly, but like, I really feel like, you know, and it ties into that element that there's three sort of distinct ways that you could read time o'clock. 
that I can make an argument that all three of them are kind of their own way of reading it, but they're all in a way kind of separate from one another. Um, go ahead. Can I say what, the, can I say yeah. what those are? Do you, do you, okay. No, um, go ahead. And none of this was really conscious, but when I thought about it after, I thought, so I'll, I'll, I don't know if I'll explain this exactly right, but I 